Heavenly Father, here we are in your presence again as your people, as your blood-bought people, as your people bought with the precious blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It was upon his death that you tore that curtain and asked us to come in. Thank you for the privilege. And here we are, opening our Bibles, sensing our dependence on your Holy Spirit. And so come, Holy Spirit, come. Have your way with us today. We approach you again in the name of Jesus. Amen. They were getting ready to move into a new neighborhood. And this new neighborhood would have some very distinct advantages. After year upon year of move after move, they would finally have a permanent home. They would finally have a place to call home. And this new neighborhood, quite frankly, would be much easier, much more prosperous. They would be better off financially for sure. But with all those advantages, this new neighborhood also had some distinct challenges, some drawbacks. The new neighbors that they would have left a lot to be desired, shall we say. <laughs> they seemed to be obsessed with things. These new neighbors were very materialistic. And they were, quite frankly, unbelievably sexually immoral. Pornography, prostitution, homosexuality were rampant. Sexual perversions were not only accepted in that neighborhood, but even promoted and celebrated. And to top it off, in this new neighborhood, uh, there was almost no godly influence for miles and miles around. Religious pluralism and paganism ruled the day. Now, you might be thinking that I'm speaking of a family here in 21st century America, and in some ways, I am. We are living in a society that is obsessed with materialism, sexual immorality, and religious pluralism. But the people I'm speaking of were God's people over 3,000 years ago as they were preparing to move into the new neighborhood of Canaan. And as they were on the verge of moving into their new neighborhood, the question was, how were they supposed to stay devoted? How were they supposed to remain totally devoted to God as they moved into a religiously pluralistic pagan neighborhood like Canaan? And what about the kids? What about the next generation and the generation after them? And on the hearts, I hope, of many of the parents and maybe even some of the grandparents was this. How are we supposed to prepare the kids? How are we supposed to prepare the kids to live lives in devotion, in total devotion to God, when they'll be living in a community, a neighborhood, and quite frankly, it's going to pull on them hard to leave God and to follow their own pagan gods. How could the parents and other adults in that community prepare these children to follow the God who had so graciously redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt? And as we read their story, we think of our story, don't we? 
How are we supposed to be devoted to God as we live in a pluralistic pagan society? Yes, that is obsessed with materialism, sexual immorality. How can we disciple our kids, our grandkids, and the generations even coming after them? Join me, please, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as you turn there, let me give my thanks to Pastor Mark, who has so ably, so clearly uh, shown us that these opening chapters in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has been commissioned by God to prepare a new generation of Israelites for their move into Canaan, the promised land. After living for 40 years in the wilderness, they were wanderers. For many of the people Moses was speaking to this day, that was the only life they had ever known. Many of you in this room have not seen your 40th birthday. Many of the people that Moses spoke to had not seen their 40th birthday. The only life they had ever known was life in the wilderness. And they'd heard all these promises of this land that God had told their fathers, ancient fathers, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, Isaac and Jacob, that they would have this wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> but Moses is led by God to explain to these people that this promised land was not utopia. Everything would not be easy. Now, though we might think that, you know, if God's been so gracious to these people that obedience should just flow, right? Should just be an automatic reaction, but that's not the case. Life in Canaan, life in the promised land would actually have some distinct challenges, some serious dangers to their commitment to live fully devoted to God. We're going to approach this chapter today by asking some very key questions. And the first one is this. What were the motivations? What, how were the people to be motivated to remember to live fully devoted to God? Now, a lot of you, as I do, have an ESV in front of you. And you'll notice that there's actually a connecting word in verse 1. I'm sorry the NIV left that out. I looked in the Hebrew, it's there. <laughs> there is a connecting word in the ESV, it's translated now. So, there's a continuation going on here in chapter 6. Moses isn't starting a brand new subject, he's actually continuing what he has been talking about, but giving it more definition. So what I'm going to do is, since there's a connecting word, I'm going to just back up one and a half steps to chapter 5, verse 32, and begin reading there. And what I'm going to do is just read down through verse 3. We're going to take this in sections today. So I'm going to start my reading in chapter 5, verse 32, and continue down through chapter 6, verse 3. The Lord says, through his spokesman Moses, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, you shall walk in all the way of the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, 
by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses, now an old man, 120 years old, stands in front of this group that is overwhelmingly much younger than he. As they look off into the distance to the west, they can see the promised land. And he's telling them, as you enter this land, you are to live wholly devoted to God. And this land, God has been so gracious. Hundreds of years before, God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this land would belong to them and their descendants. That Abraham would have many descendants and they would possess this beautiful land. It would be a land flowing of milk and honey. And I'm trying to imagine what was going on in the imaginations of those younger people. I mean, desert life is all they had known. And now Moses says his new home's going to be flowing with milk and honey. Now that might not be a phrase that we enjoy so much as them and agrarian people. But it's a, it's a phrase depicting prosperity, peace, enjoyment. And they were to be gladly obeying God. Did you notice as we read there at the end of chapter 5 how repeatedly they were called to be fully devoted to God? Be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside, not to the left, not to the right. You shall walk in the way the Lord God has commanded you, that you may fear the Lord your God. You, your son, your son's sons, by keeping all these statutes, all these commandments the Lord's given you. There is a clear call here that God has been gracious and because he's been gracious, you are to live fully devoted to him. And you're to be passing that on to the coming generations. That they would see that following God wholeheartedly is the way to go. It's the way he wants us to live. Their obedience would not be the cause of their, if God's grace, but it would be a response to God's grace. Look at what God has promised. Look at what God is doing, not only in the past, but look at what he's doing for you. Now live fully devoted to him. Why is there so much emphasis on this? I mean, we read this about repeatedly, live, live fully devoted to God. Don't veer to the left. Don't veer for the right. Fear God. Stay with him. Obey him. And, you know, you're listening to Moses say this, and you're, you almost feel like asking, like, Moses, what's the big deal? Why, why do you keep saying this? I got it the first time. You keep saying it, Moses. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that living in the land of Canaan had some very serious threats. We're going to do something I don't normally do when I preach through a text, is we're going to skip ahead and then come back. And so I haven't read yet verses 4 through 9. We'll come back to that, but I'd like us to go down to verses 10 through 19. Because in verses 10 through 19 there, we find answers to this next big question. What are the threats? What are the threats to total devotion? Let me read this passage now and see if you can pick them out as I read aloud. Chapter 6, verses 10 through 19. We're looking for an answer. What are the threats facing these people as they're being called to total devotion? Verse 10 says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, 
to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did, as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Did you see some of the threats? I think I saw three. Did you? One, one threat that I saw in this passage is in verses 10 through 13. I would say it this way. It's the threat of forgetting God. Even though somewhere over 700 years has passed since God promised Abraham, Abraham, all this land will be yours and be your descendants' land. Even though hundreds of years have gone by, God has not forgotten his promise. God has not forgotten his promise, and God will not forget his people. But friends, as sad as it is to say, even though God will not forget his people, his people can forget him. There would be so many material blessings in this new land. And in staccato fashion, Moses says these, great and good cities that you did not build, Houses full of good things that you did not fill. <coughs> Cisterns that you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Did, are you getting this? Are you getting this theme? The Holy Spirit is moving Moses to say to these people, you're going to be given a lot of gifts. There's going to be a lot of goodness given to you that you didn't earn. God isn't giving you this land as a... As a a payment for all these things you've done. He's going to give you all these things as an act of his grace, as an expression of his amazing generosity, that he is faithful to his promise. And we read that and we think, God is being so gracious, so what's the threat? Now you might think back to your own childhood, or maybe those of you that have raised kids can think back to your own children or grandchildren. And we've all seen this at one time or another where a child might be given a, a, an amazing gift at Christmas time. It's hard to believe that's next month, isn't it? A child might be given some gift that he really enjoys on Christmas morning and gets so caught up with a gift that he forgets or she forgets to say thank you to the giver. That the object of affection is not the giver, but the gift. And you know, it's not just the little kids, is it? It's us too. As adults, it's so often God gives us good gifts 
But we can get so wrapped up with a good gift that we forget about the giver. And sometimes even the gift, the good things God gives, becomes the object of our affection and devotion more than he himself. We are to love God and use things. And yet it's so easy to begin to love things and use God. And we get our values upside down. And God knows the hearts of people, his fallen people. And he speaks through Moses and he says, be careful, friends. Be careful, my children. You're going into a land and in that land, I'm going to just give you. I'm going to give you some amazing gifts that you have not earned. You can't take credit for. And that should stir your affection for me. But the threat is that those things themselves might become too important to you. They become the object of your affection. There's another threat in verses 14 and 15, and I would call that the first threat is the threat of forgetting God. The second threat in verses 14 and 15 is the threat of abandoning God. You know, God told the Israelites, and if you've read through your Old Testament uh, any time in recent months, you might have been bothered even as my wife and I were when we read those earlier this year. You think, oh, you know, these people are going and we'll say it politely here in this company. Uh, they were to rid the land of those inhabitants. And you read that and you say, boy, that doesn't seem very nice. Well, it, it is rather brutal in certain ways, but we remember now that God promised that land to whom? To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and their descendants. And we need to remember who God is. He's the creator of all. He's the sovereign of all, the ruler of all, and it's his. The land is God's land. And he, as the owner, has a right to give it to whomever he wants. And he decided to give this land to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. But now there were people that had come into that land that had not been promised to. And rather than being his worshipers, his followers, they, they were pagans. They were totally against God. So God told the Israelites, you need to rid the land of these idolaters or they will corrupt you. Because there's a threat of abandoning God. And many of the people, many of the Israelites, would be tempted in the coming years to, to meet some of their neighbors who followed this God or that goddess, Baal or Ashtaroth. And, and there were all these many gods in that land. And they would be tempted to think, you know what? Maybe, maybe I should hedge my bets here. I'm not going to give up on Yahweh. I'm not going to give up on the true God. But, um, you know, maybe... Maybe there's some merit in taking on this God too, you know, just, just to be safe, just to hedge my bets. And, and they began to think that if I just maybe add to Yahweh, if I just add to God, I'll be safer, I'll be more prosperous, my, my, my sheep will have more use, more uh, lambs, uh, you know, my crops will be more fruitful, my olive trees will be overbearing, you know. Maybe I'll just add some of the neighbor's gods here just to hedge my bets. You know, and that makes sense if our minds are divorced from God and His ways, but let me, let me just give you an illustration here. What if one of the men in our church, God forbid, but what if the men in our church said, you know, I've been thinking here. Um, I think I'll keep my wife, but 
I think I'll just add a few other ladies into my life too, you know? Now, if someone in your circle of friends, a, a married man, a professing Christian married man said to you, I'm, gonna, I'm not divorcing her, I'm going to keep my wife, but I'm going to add a few other ladies into my life, would you be okay with that? Would you say, great idea? Or would you say, what are you thinking? And out of love, out of a passionate love for your friend, you'd say, don't do that. I mean, you would be appalled if a Christian man, a married man in your circle said, I'm going to just add a few other ladies into my life. Well, how do you think the wife would feel? The wife would be thinking, you don't, you don't do that. You confess loyalty to your wife on your wedding day and to her alone, to her alone. How do you think God would feel when his supposed followers said, oh, you know, I'm not abandoning you, God, I just, but I, I want to I just add some of my neighbor's gods too just to hedge my bets against potential disaster. How do you think God would feel about that? He says, no, I bought you. I brought you out of slavery. God would not be okay with that. Because anytime you put a plus after God, anytime you put a plus after Christ, you're actually diminishing the value of God. When you put a plus after God, you're saying he's not sufficient in and of himself. I need to add to God this or that. You don't add to God. You don't add to Christ. And God says through Moses here, there's going to be a threat, there's going to be a, a danger here that by seeking to add to God, eventually you will just abandon God. That was true in that day, and that is true in our day. There's a third threat. In verses 16 through 19, and I call this the threat of doubting God. I think that's the point behind verse 16 when it talks about putting God to the test. Moses says, don't do what you did at Massa." Now, some of you may recall Exodus 17, where there was this scene in a place called Massa where um, people were running out of water. Life was getting scary, life was getting hard, and the prospects of it getting better looked kind of dim, and people started complaining, and, and Moses says, don't test God. They were testing God. What that means is when God says, I'll take care of you, and life gets hard, the prospect for life getting easier looks rather faint. And, you, and you, look, you look at life and you say, this is hard. How do I know God loves me? I mean, if God loves me, loves me, why, why is life getting so hard? Why am I going through these difficulties? And, and we begin to doubt God. And, and so we start testing God. We say, God, if you really love me, you, you need to do this. God, if you really love me, you need to do that. And we start putting these parameters on God, these requirements of God. You need to prove yourself, God. If you want me to stay loyal to you, if you want me to stay totally devoted to you in this hard life, you're going to have to prove that you deserve my trust. And Moses says, don't, don't put God to the test. You know, and here we are, many of us professing Christians. And I just want to remind you as one of your pastors we all go through hard times. Some of you are going through hard times right now. And we will all, if you live long enough, you are going to go through hard times. And there are seasons of life that are just plain old difficult. They feel dark. They feel hard. And we might start questioning God's love for us. But my Christian friend, in those moments, where do you run? 
Where do you run when life gets hard? How do you know God loves you? You run to the cross. You run to the cross. You don't saunter to the cross. You don't meander to the cross. When you're going through trials, you run to the cross. And you say, there is a monument of God's love for me that will never go away, that will never be diminished, that will never be diluted. I know God loves me because the cross stands before me. What did the Apostle John say in his first letter? Chapter 4, verse 10, he says, this is love. It's like, it's like John saying, okay, you, you want to know the epitome of love? You, you want to know what's the, the biggest love there ever was? Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, now that's love, that he sent his son for me. We always view our problems through the lenses of the cross. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. We don't put God to the test. The cross always stands as proof of his love. All these dangers. I'm going to go back forward now to verses 4 through 9. God's calling is clear. He wants his people to live lives of fully devoted, full devotion to him. And, and yet there are dangers. There's these dangers of, of, you know, these threats to pull us away from God. So what's the solution? How do we prepare our hearts? How do we prepare our lives? How do we prepare the coming generations to stay true to God, to stay fully devoted to God as we go through this fallen world with all these threats? We're blessed to have many children in our church, and I would like to give some special attention to parents today. It's not only for parents, but parents, I want you to know that you have a significant ministry to your children and those of us that are grandparents, aunts, uncles, older friends, pastors, Sunday school teachers, youth group workers, we're your support team. But you parents are the primary disciples of your children. You're the primary disciples of your children. The rest of us are on your team. So parents, listen as we walk through this paragraph. And just for a mnemonic device, just to be able to remember more clearly I'm going to give you four words that begin with the letter L of how parents can prepare the coming generation to stay fully devoted to God as they traverse this fallen world. Let's read now in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, a very famous passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and, and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." The first L word I have for you is listen. Listen to God. Some of you are familiar with this passage. It's the most famous passage for many Jews over the centuries. 
This is the first passage that many Jewish children are taught to memorize, to say. In fact, many faithful Jewish families to this day repeat this twice every day. It's known as the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Elecharu. I mean, it is a call. They speak often in Hebrew repeatedly, day after day. You may recognize one verse from this Shema, from something Jesus said. Remember Matthew 22, and one of the scribes came up and says, Teacher, they're, they're testing Jesus. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember what Jesus said? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, where do you think Jesus got that? Because as a boy, he knew it. He wrote it, but he also, <laughs> he also knew it growing up as the divine man, the Shema. Listen, listen. Shema means, I think I'd put it in modern American, something like, listen up. Pay attention, follow through, Shema, listen up. And we as parents, as grandparents, as adults, we need to listen up to God and his ways. The Lord our God is one. There have been scads of articles and books written on what does that mean. It probably means more than this, but it doesn't mean less than this, that God is unique. He has no peers. Now, allow me to strongly state some words of clarification. And I think this is so important living in a pluralistic age. The Shema is not saying there is one God. It is not merely saying there is one God. It says a whole lot more than that. It's not merely there is one God, but it is Yahweh is the one God. Friends, we live in a day of designer gods. You know what I mean by that? We live in a day of designer gods. If Try this. When you go to work tomorrow, you go to school tomorrow, you're out and about tomorrow, ask, ask anybody. Ask someone you know well. Ask a stranger in line at the checkout line or something. You know. Do you believe in God? And especially in a community like this, what kind of answer do you think you're going to get? Yeah. I would say the great majority of people in our country would say they believe in God. The great majority. So what if you were to follow that up and say, well, that's great, you believe in God. What, what, what if you were to follow up with that by saying, tell me about him. Tell me about him. What kind of answers do you think you would get? What do you think the opening phrase would be? I'm going to guess, more often than not, it's going to follow along something like this. Well... I think of God as, or I like to think of God as, or how many times have you heard this? My God would never. When I hear that kind of language, I, I, I want to politely push back and say, you're God? You see, we live in a culture that not only is this acceptable, this is promoted and defended, that everybody has a right to think of God however he wants. That is so sacrosanct in our culture that everybody has a right to think of God as he wants. And we have all these designer gods out there. And it almost takes you back to Canaan, where there are all these gods, small g. We have all these gods today, designer gods. People come up with their own imaginations. Do you know the problem with that? 
God is. God is. He is a real being who's taken the pains to reveal his attributes in his word and in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He exists as a real being with real attributes. And he's not been silent about it. He has spoken to us saying, I am like this. God is not some sort of fuzzy, amorphous figment of people's imagination. He is a real being with real attributes and real direction for the people he's created. And so when the Shema says, Yahweh, our God, is one, it's a statement of who is speaking, who he is. It's not that there is a God, but Yahweh, Jehovah God, is the God. And he is without peers. And so we parents, we grandparents, aunts, uncles, Sunday school teachers, youth group workers, pastors, we all need to realize that we need to listen up. We need to listen to what God is saying about himself. Do you know what that means for us? We need to study his word. Remember how Peter ended his second letter? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no retirement age on that verse. We go through life until he calls us home, learning more and more about Jesus Christ. You can't give what you don't have. And so if you're thinking about the influence you're having on your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, you can't give what you don't have. So we need to be listening up. Listening up. What's God telling us about himself? What is God telling us about his way? So that we can learn it. Because if it's not in here, it's not going to come out there. So the first L word is to listen. The second L is love. You shall love the Lord your God. This command, based on the previous verse, is central to the whole book of Deuteronomy. God doesn't want just outward conformity, a begrudging conformity to commands. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. When it says to love the Lord your God, there's this, we would say, heartfelt obedience to God. This keeping covenant with Him. It is feelings, but it's more than feelings. And again, using the analogy of marriage, I think back 46 years when I stood in front of a couple hundred people and I said to this lady over here, I said, I promise to love you till death do us part. Was there feeling in that? Oh, yeah. But it wasn't mere feeling. It's a commitment that's taken us through our harder days as well as our, our best days. A commitment to one another. I promise, I promise to love you. When it says, love the Lord your God, it's that kind of language. Total devotion. Total devotion. Did you catch all the alls here? With all your heart. Probably an emphasis actually on the mind. In the Hebrew, heart often referred to how you look at life. All your soul would include feelings, but even more than that. With all your might, energy, action. Yeah, total devotion. Love the Lord your God. That's the second L word. The third L word, you ready? Is lead your children to God. 
this part of the Shema seems pretty much to me pointed especially to fathers, but we would include mothers. And he's saying to the dads, lead your children to God. How are you supposed to do that? Well, he says to do it formally. He says to teach them diligently. When I read that phrase, teach them diligently, there seems to be a, an intentionality there that dads and moms, but dads are to be intentional in teaching their children about the ways of God. I like to think of this as, we might say, planned, planned instruction. And when our kids are growing up, we just called it family devotions, you know, that we had a time every day when we gathered as a family and I would teach them the ways of God with my wife's help, teaching them the ways of God. It, it's, it's intentional, it's planned. You say, let's look at our lives, let's look at the way we live and block out time to instruct the children in the ways of God. I would encourage you, if you aren't doing that, to begin today. And if you need help, catch me, catch one of the other pastors, catch some of our staff here. We're glad to help you with that. But it's not only that formal teaching, it's informal too, isn't it? He says, talk of them. When, when you're at home, sitting at meals, um, when you're traveling, when you're in the car, we would say, when you lie down getting ready for bed, talking about life, talking to your kids about the Lord, when you rise, when you're getting up in the morning. So it's informal too. So there's that planned formal time, but there's also that spontaneous informal time. There are so many teachable moments as we go through our normal day, isn't there? I mean, I've helped disciple parents and discipling their kids, and now I'm at the age where I'm discipling grandparents and how to disciple their grandkids. And you know, a common pushback I get is, hey, life's so busy, we just don't have time. Well, excuse me, but make time. And then seize the moments you have. Just seize the moments you have. There's something happening in your life, something happening in your family. Seize that moment to teach your children the ways of Christ. And then the fourth L is live for God every day. Live for God. Verses 8 and 9. And, and you read these uh, words here that might seem a little unusual to us in verses 8 and 9 when it talks about binding them as a sign on your hand. And, and uh, many of the Jews, even in Jesus' day and up to our day, uh, took this quite literally. And they would have what were known as tefillim, uh, that they would tie these straps around their left arms. Uh, they would fasten little leather boxes to forehead. I should, I'm using past tense. They still do this, many. Uh, these leather boxes to their foreheads. And inside those little boxes would be scripture verses. And it was a way for them to say, oh, there, there we go. You can see it on the head and on the left arm, tefillim. And then they also had these little things they put on doorposts called mezuzahs. Uh, and you, maybe you have some Jewish friends as we do, and uh, you can see a mezuzah on the doorpost of their house to this day. And um, those who are faithful in using the mezuzah uh, might kiss their fingers and touch that or touch that and kiss their fingers. But, you know, it, it's a saying, the word of God is in that little box. And I appreciate the word of God. So for centuries, many Jewish people have taken this quite literally. But it could be figurative. Uh, if it's figurative, uh, the hands probably refer to conduct, the forehead, the mind, the thoughts, the doorpost, the home. Whether you take it literally or figuratively, and there's advantages both ways. The point is this. That all of life is to be lived for God. All of life is to be lived for God. My conduct, my thinking, our home. And those of us who 
have children or grandchildren, those of you who are adults influential in the lives of young ones, we need to live every day in their presence, fully devoted to God. Show them what it means. There's still a few more verses in this chapter, isn't there? Verses 20 through 25. And when I read 20 through 25, I think, oh, may it be so. Oh, may it be so. Think about it, friends. If you and I as adults, if we live before the coming generation with this passion for God, if we live before the coming generation with this, this life of loving God and being devoted to Him, what do you think that will do in the hearts, the thinking of the young ones? Their curiosity is going to be stirred. Especially when they get a little bit older and they look around and they say, Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Why, why does our family live so differently than those people? Hey, Papa. Why, why are we and our family so passionate about the Word of God? Why are we part of a church that gives such attention to the Bible, the Word of God? I mean, other kids at school, their families don't do that. Other kids in the neighborhood, their families don't do that. What? Why are we different? Why, why do we live so differently than the people around us? We, we want our kids to ask that question. Verses 20 through 25. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed us signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. And friends, just concisely, briefly, what we see going on here is kind of a reverse catechism, isn't it? In catechisms, the dads ask the kids the questions. This time, it's the kid asking the dad the question. Dad, why, why do we live so differently? What's so important about God? What's so important about the Word of God that... that that makes us live as if we're swimming upstream against our culture. And the dad in Moses' day say, thanks for asking, son. Thanks for asking, daughter. Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you the story of our family. We were slaves. We were slaves in Egypt. And Yahweh, Jehovah God, came and he, he redeemed us. He, he rescued us out of our slavery. And he, he's brought us to this point that, that we're entering, entering the promised land, the land he promised our ancestors hundreds of years ago. Son, daughter, do you see how kind God is? Do you, do you see how gracious God has been that he rescued us out of our slavery and he's brought us to the promised land? We want to live for him, son. That's why we live this way. He's good and gracious. Oh, how he loves us. That we want to live in wholehearted devotion to him. You know, we can move ahead, friends. We can move ahead 
another 3,300 years to our day. And when our sons, our daughters, our, our grandsons, our daughters, granddaughters, come to us and say, why do we live so differently? Why aren't we just going with the flow, Dad? Why aren't we just going with the flow, Papa? Why, why do we live? Why do we live this way? Why are you so passionate about God and this word? And we say, listen to me. We were slaves. We were slaves to our sin to Satan and to ourselves. And God came and he rescued us. He redeemed us out of our slavery with the precious blood of his son. Do you see it, son? Do you see it, daughter? Grandson, granddaughter, do you see God's amazing grace to us? How could we live any different? Why would we not value him so highly? Why would we not be devoted so much to knowing him through his word? That we give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So that day as the people were preparing to go into the land, Moses gave them this word. Sometimes I wonder what our church will be like in 25 years. I'll be getting old by then. <laughs> what will our church be like in 25 years? I've prayed for decades. Lord, may the generation coming behind us excel us in grace. You know, as we're running the race, may the generation coming behind me blow right by me in the pursuit of Christ. But it's not... It's not just a given. You want to hear some sad words from sometime after Deuteronomy? In the book of Judges, chapter 2, we read these verses. I'm in Judges, chapter 2. It says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, the guy that came after Moses. The Lord served all the, they, they served the Lord all the days after Joshua and all the day of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So a passing of generations. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods." from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. It's really sad news, isn't it? That within a generation or two, there had been an abandonment of God. But friends, as bad as the bad news is, I have some good news. I have some really good news. And that is where Israel failed, Christ did not. Satan came and sought to pull Adam away from his loyalty to God and he seduced Adam to do just that. And the first Adam failed. And out there in the wilderness, Satan pulled Israel away from their loyalty to God and we saw it in just a few generations. 
And God didn't just scrap his whole plan of saving people, but he sent his son in a seminal place. You can read this. It's Jesus in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, for instance. In Matthew 4, you read the story of Jesus in the wilderness. And where the first Adam failed, the true and better Adam, the second Adam succeeded. The true vine did not succumb, even as Israel the vine did. And when Satan came and tried to pull Jesus away from his passionate loyalty to God, his fully, full devotion to his Father, Jesus stood strong. Interestingly, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, and our true and better Adam, the true vine, succeeded on our behalf. And those of us who are in Christ, we have his spirit within us. We have the Holy Spirit within us. And so finding our hope in Christ, you and I can devote ourselves to following God. We have his spirit. We have his word. We have his people to help us. And I want to encourage all of us to learn from this exhortation from Moses to people over 3,000 years ago that the same points are true in our day. That we are called to live fully devoted for Christ and to pass that on to the coming generations. Let me pray for us. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart right now, and I'm not going to play Holy Spirit. But if the Holy Spirit's prompting you in certain ways to change, to repent, to commit... Don't look at yourself. Look to Christ. Look to his spirit and say, help me to live for you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace to us. You were gracious to your people of long ago. And for those of us that are in your son, Jesus Christ, you have been astonishingly gracious to us. Help us to live fully devoted lives to you. And Lord, that you would use us who are older to pass that gospel baton on to the coming generations, that they might watch us, they might listen to us, and that by your amazingly sovereign grace, you would give the coming generation eyes to see your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, and that they too would join us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.